I thought I would let the title of my message this morning tell you the whole story. So this is for those of you that like to sort of drift off during the sermon or maybe work on your to-do list. My, my sermon title is The Full Story, The Full Picture, How the Christmas Story Helps Us Understand the Necessity of Wedding the Human and the Divine. Now, I got that idea because if you read back in a few hundred years ago, Puritan preachers in the 17th and 18th century were infamous for their sermon titles. Uh, it would give you the whole story. I, I, I pulled up a couple of examples this week. John Leland, a Baptist evangelist, gave a message in 1791. Here was his title. The rights of conscience inalienable, and therefore religious opinions not cognizable by law, or the high-flying churchman stripped of his legal robe appears a yeho. I don't know what a yeho is <laughs> back in the 18th century, so you just let your imagination run wild. Uh, William Hook, who lived in the 17th century, gave a sermon that was titled, What Gifts of Grace Are Chiefly to Be Exercised in Order to an Actual Preparation for the Coming of Christ by Death and Judgment. So if you just look at the program, you've got my whole sermon right there. The Christmas season is a time that's filled with hopes, plans, expectations. Uh, people sort of fall into that. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, uh, this lady says, one year I helped my daughter make her Christmas cards. The front had a picture of her three children and said, I like to give homemade gifts for Christmas. Inside it said, which one of the kids would you like? <laughs> then there's the one that said, dear friend, your name is on my Christmas card list, and as I write your name and address on the envelope, an odd, puzzling feeling of wonder washed over me, and I wondered, who are you? <laughs> so maybe you have some like that on your Christmas list. Well, Christmas is right around the corner, uh, along with decorating and baking and shopping, all those things, come expectations. I'll bet you have some for your Christmas Maybe it's the expectation of a certain gift or maybe of the holiday spirit that you expect to experience as you spend time with family and with friends. Maybe it is that through the festivities of Christmas, you'll have some joy in your life or find respite from the pressures of daily responsibilities. You know, if I'm, just, if I'm with the right people, if, if I get the right gift, if I go to the right party, you know, I'll have a satisfying Christmas, a successful Christmas. We have expectations that our children will be perfect angels during the Christmas season, especially Christmas Day. You know, they'll just love the gifts that you purchased for them. Uh, we have expectations that our boss will be generous with a year-end bonus, rewarding our diligent and hard work to make him or her look better. Uh, we have expectations that mom and dad won't embarrass me with my friends or with family members this year. You know, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Christmas can be something we dread and not anticipate. But you know what? The Christmas story also involves some expectations. Take Mary and Joseph, for example. The expectation that they had uh, for their life to, to start off around that Christmas time. Now, they're engaged to be married. And the, the, uh, the, in their culture for the year-long betrothal period, they were considered married, except they didn't have sexual relations. But they must have spent, I just have to believe they spent hours talking, as engaged couples do, about their future and their plans and their hopes. And then the gospel writer Luke, 
records a visit to this young woman, Mary. It's a visit that changes their lives forever. And to the extent that they understood the implications of that visit, their lives will be far different than anything they expected or even could imagine. If you have a Bible, let's go to the part of the Christmas story. It's Luke chapter 1. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1088. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Can you imagine the conversation that Mary must have had with her fiancé? I mean, it so discombobulated him. Because he loved her, he decided he would simply divorce her quietly, put her away so there would not be the embarrassment and the shame that would come on the whole family. And so it called for another angel visit. Turn back two books to the Gospel of Matthew. First book in your New Testament, Matthew. We're going to Matthew chapter 1. Now the angel comes around again. So we pick up in reading at verse 18 of chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, it was found that she was with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the, pro what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I imagine that having to come to terms with God's plan for their lives, and what a plan it was, 
but must have been, must have, you know, fallen into their making these plans for the coming child. And so I suspect they, they were probably well into their prenatal classes. They'd mapped out the route to the Nazareth hospital. They were wondering about which grandparents to call to come and stay so they could get some sleep. And then the Roman Empire calls for a census of all times. Caesar Augustus declares that everyone had to return to their family's home of record in order to be enrolled in a census for the purpose of taxation. Remember that Joseph's ancestor is David, the famed king of Israel, whose home was Bethlehem. Now, there's no computers back there. All the family records were kept in the city where their ancestors were from. And so they take the journey. It's about 80 miles to the south. Uh, there were no 800 numbers that they could call, make hotel reservations. In fact, there were no hotels. Their expectation was to find housing probably with some distant relative or maybe some sort of inn that was set aside for travelers. Now, perhaps because of Mary's condition, it took them a little longer to get there. And by the time they arrive, all of the inns are filled. The only place that's available is a spot in the inn stable. I don't think this is what they expected. Do you? This wasn't going according to their plans. This isn't how they thought that it was going to be. And perhaps they expected that they'd be able to take care of business quickly and get back on the road to Nazareth, back home. But the gospel account says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Not how they planned it. Uh, it's not what they expected that first Christmas. And then think of the shepherds. I mean, uh, first of all, they're not expecting anything. They're just out on the hillside outside Bethlehem. All they're preparing for is another night under the stars watching smelly sheep, you know, that have been entrusted to their care by their employer. I would guess that their expectation was for a very non-eventful, peaceful night. And maybe they'd even get a little bit of sleep if there weren't any predators that break in and disturb the flock. Never in their wildest dream did they ever expect God to show up that first Christmas. They had no earthly idea that their lives would never be the same. And they would experience transformation that none of them could have imagined. The first Christmas, so many different expectations. So many different plans, so many different preparations. But, you see, that's only one side of the story. There, there's a whole other side that we have to think about and take into consideration. God had been busy preparing for that first Christmas. In fact, he'd been preparing for this night before he even created the world. Would you just think about that for a moment? Let that settle in, that here is God within the Godhead in eternity past who, who, who is already planning, conceiving this eternal plan that meant that the God-man, the Savior, would come to earth. Now, over a period of centuries, God spoke through the prophets, and he told of the day when God would become a man and would come to earth for a very specific purpose. They spoke of a virgin who would conceive this child, a child who would be Messiah. 
Isaiah spoke of this first Christmas, oh, probably 700 years before that night in Bethlehem, when he said this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there are more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before that first night in Bethlehem, that all prophesied about Jesus' first coming, that first Christmas. God's preparations were all underway. His timing was impeccable, and it was precise. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, but when the fullness of time had come, one, one translation is when the time was just right, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not only was the timing right, conditions were ripe. And there was a heightened anticipation that this might be the time that Messiah would come and so people were looking for that. Now, the world at that time, remember, is under the rule of the Roman Empire. And two accomplishments of the empire uh, made the time so right. The first was Pax Romana, Roman peace. Under Caesar Augustus, this general period of peace would be ideal for the establishment and for the expansion of the Christian church. The gospel would take root during a time where, for the most part, people could worship any god that they pleased. Another one is the Roman roads. They were a vital part of the development of the empire. The Roman road system spanned more than 248,000 miles, with more than 50,000 miles of paved road. The roads facilitated the movement of soldiers and commerce throughout the empire. And these same roads would facilitate the movement of the gospel all through the known world because of that. One other thing, one of the greatest legacies of the Greeks was their language. Koine Greek became the language of commerce and travel. It was known all throughout the empire. And it helped to facilitate the spread of the gospel, the good news. All of these achievements, advancements, they're all part of God's preparation for that first Christmas that would result with God coming to earth in the form of his son. 700 years before Christmas, the prophet Micah foretold exactly where the first Christmas would occur. Here's what he wrote. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. But here's the problem. Mary and Joseph are from the town of Nazareth. Oops. But wait. Luke the historian picks up the story. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. You see, from a uh, human perspective, 
Christmas is all about coincidences. The census. Going to Bethlehem. Delivering a baby while there. But behind it all is this unmistakable, precise timing of God in his preparations. One of the great things maybe we'll see in heaven is how God used little things to accomplish his divine purpose. And so Caesar Augustus ordered a census for the purpose of taxing people. People were required to go to the city of their ancestors' birth in order to register. And that meant Mary and Joseph would need to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem, an arduous journey for a pregnant woman. Coincidence? Maybe God's preparations. But see, this is just one side of the story. A young man, a young woman, a group of shepherds out on the hillside, outside Bethlehem. It's just a very human story unfolding as the days go by. But there's another story. There's a divine aspect that must be wedded with the human if we're going to get a full picture of what Christmas is all about. German theologian Helmut Tillich suggests that we need to see that the Christmas story, and let me quote him, is arranged somewhat like a musical score. Its upper and lower lines must be read simultaneously. Now, if that's nonsense to you, if you don't have a musical background, let me help you out just a little bit. If I'm sitting at the piano with a sheet of music, what I'm going to see on there is that there's the bass clef that I'll play with my left hand, and there's the treble clef that I will play with my right hand. Now, I, I tell you honestly, I personally find the bass clef left hand a little pedestrian, a little bland, a little, little boring usually to me. But in, in the Christmas story, the lower cleft are those earthly events. It, it, it's a journey. The arrival at a packed town uh, with no place to stay. It's the delivery of a baby at the most inopportune time. It's a group of shepherds just passing time alone out on the hillside. For Mary and Joseph, no doubt, there, there's some fear. There's, there's intrepidation with their circumstances. They're alone and in unfavorable conditions in an unfamiliar setting. The shepherds, think about a routine, perhaps boring, resigned to a life lived on the lowest level of the societal ladder. But then God breaks into the story, and the upper clef is added. Heaven opens, and the angels sing, and God brings a message of hope, of life, of fulfillment. Tillichy writes, whoever fails to read this upper cleft has not understood the whole score, for both lines harmonize. Thus there is harmony between the upper and lower lines, and we have a two-part score with the story of the birth in a manger and the hallelujahs of the angels overhead. I want to draw some application for you this morning. If, if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then this is how you have to see the whole of your life. The lower cleft is the sequence of events that you experience. Some good, some bad. Some joyful, some sorrowful. Some with expectations met, other expectations unfulfilled and disappointed. But that's just the lower cleft. The story isn't complete unless you add the other line, the upper cleft, God's presence, 
and God's purposes and God's plan. These two work in harmony to accomplish God's purpose and his plan for us, even in the midst of uncertain and difficult times. See, I think that's why we need to better understand God's purpose in our lives for those who are his children. You know, we become so focused on the lower cleft alone. It's where we're living. But there's a whole greater purpose that God has in mind for you beyond your temporary happiness and success. God's perspective, you see, is eternity. And he's fitting you out for living with him forever. This lifetime is just like a speck on the wall of China compared to eternity when you'll experience the fullness of all that God has for you in his presence forever. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, Paul describes the salvation that is ours in our experience and in our position. It all has a view to eternity. Look what he writes. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And not only is God preparing you for eternity, he also wants to transform your life here on earth. He wants to produce in you and in me the very character traits, the very likeness of Jesus. So I ask myself, well, why then does God do some of the things that he does? Why does he allow things that he allows to come into our lives? Another great writer, I think, is Philip Yancey. And Yancey writes this, God recognizes that we are the ones on the journey, not himself. The journey does not transpire like a treasure hunt, such that if we follow the instructions and look hard enough, we will find the treasure. No, the journey itself is the goal. The very quest for God, our determined pursuit, changes us in the ways that matter most. The silence and darkness we encounter, the temptations, and even the sufferings can all contribute to God's stated goal of shaping us into persons more like he intended, more like his son. In his Bible, an elderly minister carried a bookmark a bookmark that was made of silk threads woven into a motto. At the back of the bookmark was just a tangled web of cross threads that seemed to be without reason or purpose. And when the minister visited a home or a hospital room where there was great trouble, sorrow, even death, he would frequently show the bookmark. And, and he would do it by first presenting the reverse side with all its unintelligible tangle. When the distressed person had examined it carefully and intently without finding any meaning to the seemingly disorder, then the minister would ask the person to turn the bookmark over. And immediately against the white silk background, there appeared a phrase in colored threads, God is love. That side made sense. It had order. It had meaning. It was the upper cleft. And so it is in life. We often experience events that seem to be without explanation or meaning, like a maze of tangled threads. 
But when we are face to face with Christ and can view our life from eternity, we will see that every detail, good and bad, pleasant and unpleasant, was woven together to show us that indeed God is love. See, this is the message of Christmas. For God so loved the world, that includes you. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, that includes you, believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Some time ago, I read that actress Jodie Foster once said to a friend, if God knows all about me and still loves me, he is a fool. But what that shows is a woefully inadequate and inaccurate understanding of God, of his love, of his grace. Bill Gaither wrote a song that has in it this line, the one who knows me best loves me most. It almost sounds contradictory, doesn't it? We certainly find that in our own lives. You know, we live with the fear that people will discover who we really are. And if they discover who we really are, they won't like us. And so we spend a lot of time and energy trying to give off the impression that we've got it all together. But listen, God knows you perfectly. He knows you warts and all. And he really loves you. If you were the only person on this planet there still would have been Christmas just for you. Folks, we need to wed the upper cleft with the lower cleft if we're going to have the whole picture. Down here, it doesn't make sense. It's often unpleasant. But we've got to see what God is doing on the other side of the story, what he's put together. Don't just listen to the lower cleft. Juan, play, play lower cleft for me. Right? That's our life, isn't it? Um, add, add, add the upper cleft, please. You need them both. You need them both. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us this Christmas to understand the Christmas story, maybe afresh, that when we look at Mary and Joseph, when we look at the shepherds, when we look at everything that was going on, so human. In many, in many ways, very difficult. But that wasn't the whole story. Help us to see the angels. Help us to see heavens open and the message coming, glory to God in, in the highest. Lord, may we truly experience joy this Christmas, regardless of our life circumstances, because if we know you, that we would take into account the upper class. And Lord, if there's someone here who has never placed their trust in Christ for salvation, I pray that this Christmas would be the time when they would do it, that they might just admit that there's no way they can save themselves, that they're lost, as your word teaches us, that apart from Christ, We'll spend eternity separated from the God who loves us so much. And so I pray for them, Lord, that this Christmas they might very simply turn their life over to you and ask that you would forgive their sins and become their Savior. Lord, may that truth bring joy to them as it brings joy to all of us. And so, Lord, as we depart this place, would your benediction of grace and love and joy rest on all of us and we commit our lives to 